Emmanuel, good morning. He is worthy of our praise and our glory. He's worthy. He is worthy. Amen. That was powerful. Welcome to Center Street on this weekend, long weekend, a warm weekend in Calgary. So far, no rain, I don't think, today. Oh, so far, so good. And even if it does, it's so beautiful. The flowers are blooming. We have so much to be grateful for. We're glad that you're here with us today. If you're joining us online, welcome. Maybe you're sitting at your cottage or on your back deck and you just couldn't, f- couldn't get yourself out to church this morning. We're glad you're here anyways with us. So thank you. We are one church in many locations. South Campus, Airdrie, Northwest and Bridgeland, as well as here at Central. So thank you. Our series in 1 John is coming to a close. I'm not closing it today. We've got another one or two sermons after this. But if you haven't seen these messages, I encourage you, go online. Our website archives all the messages from this series as well as others. And you can re-watch them, or if you missed one, check it out. So I encourage you to do that. We're going to be digging into six verses today from chapter 5. And there's a lot in this section. And I'm going to be, we're going to be looking at a, a lot of other verses from other places in Scripture. And at times it may feel like you're actually running through a bit of a, a sprinkler. Like there's just so much. So I would encourage you, grab your phone, get a piece of paper, and write down some of these references so that you can go home and take a long bath with them. You can sit in them. You can soak in them to really let the truth of them Dig down deep into your your heart and mind. I love scripture and I'm so thankful that we belong to a church here at Center Street Church where we uphold truth and we preach from God's word. And I love the continuity of the message of scripture. Old Testament confirms the New Testament and Paul's writing connect with Peter's and John's. And the truth of the gospel is presented in many different ways but always with the same unifying message. And we see that in, in Paul, in John's letter, First John, that we're going through. Multiple times through this book, there are direct correlations to things that happened within the context of Jesus' ministry. John was one of the inner three, the Peter, James, and John trio that were the, part of Jesus' inner circle. And I can't help but wonder that as John, you know, old man John was writing this book, this letter, that he wasn't thinking back to the times that he was walking and talking, listening to Jesus, remembering the times that they were doing ministry together. And when one of those memories, I think, may have actually come to him during these, this passage that he writes about in John 5, uh, verses uh, 6 to 12. And so before we go to that passage... I actually want to take us to, this, to a story. It's recounted in three of the four Gospels. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he asks them a question. Who do people say I am? Now, Luke tells us that it was Peter who was quite quick, as Peter usually was, kind of often, without even thinking, he blurted out. So it was Peter that said, well, people are saying you must be one of the prophets. Maybe you're Jeremiah, maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're even John the Baptist, who not very long before had lost his head. People were talking, they were trying to figure out who is Jesus. So this question, who is Jesus, is one that people continue 
to grapple with. And each one of us, as part of our spiritual journey, will need to examine the evidence and make a personal decision. At the end of this letter, John revisits this question, who do people say I am? And he sets up a scenario much like a courtroom setting where evidence is presented. Now on the one side, you've got the Gnostics and others who denounce the deity of Christ because in their view, God as a supreme being would not lower himself to come and deal with the messiness of life. God must have just, Jesus must have just been a good man. But John defends the deity of Jesus as being the Christ, the Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnate Son of God. And he presents evidence that Jesus, who from the very beginning of time was part of that perfect triune union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, came to earth, born as a virgin, lived amongst us while also being fully God. Now, John doesn't just proclaim this from his own experience, which he could have because he had walked and talked with Jesus. But like any good courtroom setting, he brings forth witnesses that will testify, that will substantiate the claim that Jesus is the Son of God and not just a good man. Now, prior to this series on 1 John, I often thought of this book of the Bible as being the love book. You know, God loves us, we're called to love God and love others, and it is that. But as I've read it over and over, I've been struck by how many times throughout this book, all through the book, words like these are used. Proclaim, declare, confess, proves, acknowledge, testify, witness as well as words that would be antithesis or the opposite of giving a truthful account, such as lying, liar, fooling, does not know. And that's not just at the end of this book, it's through the whole thing. And so as we read this passage together in a minute, I want you to be especially alert to the words testifies and testimony and how they're used in this passage. So let's stand and let's read this passage together. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water alone, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you are truth. Father, I pray that today our hearts and our minds will be open, Lord, that you would enliven our minds to understand this passage. 
and that the truth of it would sink deep into our heart. That we would be changed by the power of your spirit. Lord, come and have your way amongst us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Recently, I had the privilege of chatting with somebody who'd been called for jury duty. And I was very careful not to divulge anything about the confidential matters of the trial. But he described what it was like to hear the various, te- various witnesses testify. Some witnesses were called because they were eyewitnesses. So they had personally seen something that either supported or disputed the claims against the defendant. Others had personally known the defendant and so could testify or give witness to this person's character. Other witnesses were called because they were medical or forensic specialists and their expertise held great weight in the presentation of evidence. It was the testimony of the witnesses woven together and then deliberated over by the jury in order for them to reach a verdict. If there was conflicting testimonies, then it was the jury's responsibility to sift through and to discern what was true and what was a lie. It was the testimony of credible witnesses that provided the information that the jury needed in order to make their decision. Now, as I said, my friend told me nothing about the trial itself, but he shared with me the agony that he experienced as he listened to the testimonies. He understood the significance, the weightiness of looking at evidence and then proclaiming them to either be true or a lie, which would lead to either a guilty or an innocent verdict. Now it's this same weightiness that comes with the words that John writes. He knows there's a lot at stake in the deliberation of who is Jesus and that declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the public opinion of the day, it varied. Was Jesus simply a man with supernatural power? Was he a fraud? Was he a carpenter from Galilee? Was he a deity who had lost his power when he died? You know, all of these beliefs were swirling around as part of the cultural context in which John writes this letter. But John puts forward a compelling case, brings forward witnesses to testify to the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And we get to listen in on this. We get to hear. We become the jury on this. But before we go to the individual witnesses, it's no coincidence that John brings forward three witnesses because throughout Scripture, two and three witnesses are required. Take a look here in the Old Testament, the giving of the Old Testament law. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that may, they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. New Testament, Matthew 18, Jesus is giving instruction on what we're to do when there's conflict. And Jesus says, 
But if they will not listen, take one or two along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul, in giving instruction to the, to the young leader Timothy, says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. And so a, when a claim is made, Jesus is the Son of God, and it's through him that we experience life. John brings forward three credible, kind of heavy guns, witnesses. The first, first witness is a spirit. Now before we hear the testimony, let's find out a little bit about this witness. Is this witness credible? Well, our Christian faith believes that God is three unique and equal beings called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Three unique, equal entities, three in one. Now the Spirit is often the one that's maybe the hardest to understand, but let's hear what Jesus has to say about the Spirit from John, the Gospel of John. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will, not, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, that's Jesus, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that is why I say the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. You see, the Spirit isn't some rogue being that does his own thing, kind of says whatever he wants. No, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are one. And so what each says about the other is unified. There's always a unified testimony about each other. The Spirit is truth. That's his characteristic. It's not just, it's not just a characteristic, I should say. It's his essence. Just like God is love, Spirit is truth. He is a credible witness. Now, going back to our passage in 1 John, we're told that the Spirit testifies. He gives testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, good testimony is verified in, in numerous situations. So where else do we see this spoken of in Scripture, that the Spirit says that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, even before Jesus is born, even before he's conceived of a virgin, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and spoke about the Spirit's testimony, that the baby that Mary would deliver would be the Son of God. Look at this from Luke chapter 1. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. The Spirit testifies to who Jesus is. Another example, at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit is again present and giving eyewitness to Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This comes from Luke 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit is there as an eyewitness to the declaration of Jesus as God's Son. 
Now throughout Jesus' years of ministry, Jesus is filled with the power from heaven. Peter testifies to this in Acts, and he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, so they were together, and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. And Jesus himself, as part of this Trinitarian relationship, speaks to how the Spirit will testify about him. This is from uh, John 15. When the Advocate, that's the Spirit, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, will testify about me. So we've got this first witness that John calls forward, the Spirit. And throughout Scripture gives solid, credible witness that Jesus is the Son of God. There's never any variation in the message. Jesus is the Son of God. Second witness is called. And this witness is water. Why would water be called? Well, from a literal perspective, water is a symbol of humanity. We cannot live without water. Our body's constitution is made up of about 60% water. Water is crucial to life. And so using water as a witness speaks to Jesus' humanity. The holy God incarnated came to live amongst us as a human. John 1, the very first two verses in the Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's his, his deity. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh. That means he got a body with 60% water as well. And he made his dwelling amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the symbolic or the figurative perspective of water, it also represents purity. Many passages in the Old and the New Testament describe us as guilty of sin. Sin that makes us filthy and we need to be cleansed and that symbolism of water is used. Jesus also describes himself as a Samaritan woman, to the Samaritan woman, as living water, like a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. Water is connected to the spiritual cleansing that comes only through Jesus. Now also, one of the other strongest declarations of this eyewitness of water occurs at the baptism. And I'll read it this time from Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And he is witness to the fact there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So as we have these two witnesses, the spirit and the water, we have this growing evidence to the true identity of Jesus. The son of God come to earth as a man. But God doesn't stop, pardon me, John doesn't stop there. He brings forward a third witness, right? And that is blood. Now blood is the lifeline of our bodies. We can be 100% healthy and strong and we get, we get cut somewhere and we can actually bleed out in a matter of minutes, right? We have to have blood. 
Blood represents life. It also represents spiritual life. Sin kills. It separates us from Holy God, the Holy God, which causes spiritual death. Blood is essential to spiritual life through the forgiveness of our sins. Now, the Old Testament required that the blood of goats and lambs be shed as an atonement, as payment for our sin. Hebrews tells us there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. But what sets Jesus apart from any and every other good man and prophet is that Jesus shed his own physical blood for us. Let's think about that for a minute. Think about what was involved with the putting on of the crown of thorns pushed into his head, two and three inch thorns pushed in. You know, this week I was doing some gardening, trimming back my rose bush. All of a sudden, ouch! I looked down and I had a pretty good poke, little speck of blood. Ouch. But compared to the crown of thorns pushed into his head. And then there was the flogging that he endured. Multiple straps of leather, each with either a piece of lead or a jagged piece of bone tied to it. And hit and hit his neck, his ribs, his torso, his hips. Imagine the blood that flowed. And then you got the actual crucifixion. Spikes pounded through his hands, through his feet. The blood that drained from his body. The writer of Hebrews speaks to Jesus' blood and that the blood of Jesus replaced the need for the blood of animals. This is such a significant passage. I want us to actually read this together. This is from Hebrews chapter 9. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. What a powerful witness, the blood of Jesus. And so we have three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood. But John doesn't stop there he actually brings forth another piece of evidence. He doesn't just present the testimony of water and then the testimony of blood. He brings water and blood together as another evidence that Jesus was born as a man, was the son of God, and that he truly died. This was like John turning to the skeptics in the crowd and saying, if he still needed more evidence, here it is. Listen to this. And what he's referring to is what happens on the cross. Imagine you're in the jury box and you hear this as part of the evidence. 
But when they came to Jesus and they found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and this testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that Scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Jesus died. And the the combination of the blood and the water, the separation, shows that he truly died. Now, if I was sitting in that jury box at that point, hearing this case, and I heard that testimony, I think I'd be saying, whoa, that's pretty compelling. So let's go back to our text for a minute. John proceeds with his closing arguments by saying, we accept human testimony. Now, within that statement, he actually takes us back to the very first verses of this uh, First John, which is where he says that from the very beginning, we have heard and we've seen, we've looked at and our hands have touched. He's, he's referring to his testimony as somebody who had been with Jesus. He said, we proclaim concerning the life. The life has appeared. We've seen it. We've testified to it. We proclaim. Hear all those words again? Which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you that what we have seen so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we have this human testimony. And then we've got the three witnesses that testify to Jesus being the Son of God. And then John makes one last statement, the weightiest, the most significant, and here it is. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, the blood, and the three are in agreement. And we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. That's a bold statement. Either we believe God and what he says about Jesus, or we don't. There's no maybe, kinda, perhaps, middle ground, well, I'm not sure. Either God's testimony is true, or God is a liar. That's pretty drastic. Can't it be mostly true? I mean, isn't truth relative? So let me give you an example. You've got a teenager. Already some of you are starting to sweat. You remember those days of having teenagers. You have a teenager, and that teenager says, you know, I'd really love to go to my friend's house tonight. You go, okay, yeah, sure, go ahead and spend the night at your friend's house. And so the next day they come back, yeah, did you spend the night at, you know, did you go to your friend's house? Yep, yep, I went to my friend's house. And then you discover that what they did is they went to their friend's house for about five minutes. And then they went off to a party somewhere else. Is that good enough truth for you as a parent? Now, as a teenager, you're might hoping that it kind of passes the truth test, right? But as a mom, I want to know the truth. Not just some of it. I want to know that if something is true, it's reliable. 
It's 100% true. It's a little bit like water. This bottle of water is called pure life. Ninety-seven percent pure. <laughs> Wouldn't you kind of wonder what the other three percent is? It's either a truth or it's a lie. There's no middle ground. The last two verses of this passage present the statement that this is either taken as truth or a lie. It's the testimony of the people who were present. They walked with Jesus. They saw what he did. It's the testimony of the spirit, the water, and the blood. And it's the testimony of God. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So where does that put us? Each of us have a choice to make. We're the jury. Do we believe the testimonies of the witnesses? And thus we put our belief in the testimony of the witnesses, in Jesus. Or do we look at the evidence and say, God's a liar? My prayer is that we make the choice to believe and to trust and to follow Jesus because that is the only way you become a child of God. Our salvation lies solely on who Jesus is and what he has done for me, what he's done for you. There's no works involved in our salvation. Our salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. Now, I started this message by recounting the story of Peter answering Jesus' question, who do people say I am? Well, after Peter's response, Jesus asked him a much more pointed question. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Each one of us has been called to testify to who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. Now you might say, oh, come on, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've put my faith in Jesus. Is it really necessary to testify? I mean, isn't that, isn't that what we pay pastors to do? And after all, that's not my spiritual gift. Well, I want to take us back to a verse in John 15. We read verse 26. We're going to read 26 and 27 this time. So here's verse 26. When the advocate, remember that's the spirit comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Watch 27. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. I was in my mid-20s. That was a few decades ago. I was just starting my career as a, as a school teacher. I'd had no Bible school training. Yeah, I'd grown up in the church. I read my Bible occasionally. Well, I tried to do it frequently, but more likely it was I would read it if I was going to a Bible study, kind of catch up, you know, before I got there. I knew Jesus was my personal Savior. People knew I went to church. But testify about my faith didn't happen. And then something an event that changed that for me. 
I was having dinner with a good friend that I went to high school with. He knew my faith. I had quietly lived out my faith. You see, it was kind of my motto, just live my faith. But I'd never really spoken about Jesus. And I remember him that night asking some very pointed, not confrontational, just inquisitive questions about Jesus and why Jesus was important to me. I froze. I fumbled my way through that, giving some very poorly worded explanations, some vague Bible verses about Jesus and salvation. And in all honesty, I think I just wanted to get through that conversation and try and change the topic as quickly as I could. I remember during that conversation, but especially afterwards, knowing that I had missed a chance to stand up and to testify about the hope that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus. The embarrassment that I felt, the realization that I had failed my friend, more importantly, I had failed Jesus. And that actually prompted me to call the church we were attending here at the time and say, I, I need to find out how to do this. I don't want to find myself in that kind of situation again. I want to be prepared so that when an opportunity comes, I can be a credible witness for who Jesus is and what he's done in my life. And I suspect my experience as a young woman is one that many of here, you have also experienced. And I'm going to put forward three reasons why I believe we, and I refer to we, because most of us don't have theology degrees. We don't wear the, the name tag pastor. We go to work in hospitals or schools, oil companies, grocery stores. But we're there where people need Jesus. They're inquisitive about Jesus. And what is it that holds us back from entering into those conversations? Causes us to shy away from testifying about who Jesus is. Well, I think one of the first things is a lack of knowledge. Now that day as a 25-year-old woman, I kind of knew what the Bible said. But I didn't really know any specific verses that I could refer to. I'd never studied how to testify about Jesus and my faith. I was a Christian, absolutely. But I was not living out the verse from 2 Timothy that says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth, who knows what the Bible has to say about Jesus and can share it with others. Now, if you resonate with that and you'd like to be able to articulately speak about Jesus and what he's done rather than quickly changing the topic and talking about how great the stamps are doing this year, I would encourage you 
Talk to one of the pastors here. Go online and check to see what we have in our learning and growth catalog. Maybe you're part of a small group and you could say, hey, let's do this together. Let's learn how to share our faith and testify. Let's practice on each other so that we have a confidence. We build our knowledge of how to do this. Let's not let our lack of knowledge hold us back from being a credible witness for Jesus. Don't leave this to the pastors. We are all marketplace ministers. Whether we're meeting our neighbors in a, at the playground or we're going camping or we're having coffee, whatever we're doing, let's be witnesses for Jesus. The second thing I think that often holds us back is fear. How often have we shied away from testifying because we're afraid of what people think of us? You know, not having biblical knowledge can accentuate the fear, but more often than not, it's simply a fear of people's opinions of us that keep us from testifying. You know, a verse that's been challenging to me in this area comes from John 12. Scripture tells us that a considerable number of the leaders did believe in Jesus, but they wouldn't come out because they were concerned about people's opinions of them. In essence, they cared more about human approval than about God's glory. Ugh, man, have I been guilty of that one. Guilty of trying to figure out what the other person might be thinking about me if I shared something about my faith. And I usually come to the conclusion, oh no, they don't want to hear. But what I've been learning and as God builds my trust in him in this is that if he's stirring something in me, and that actually feels, it's almost like the spirits inside of me kind of pushing my heart. Like it's kind of stirring up and going, say something, Rosemary. And I'm like, no, 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 And I have this argument inside, right? But I can feel this. Say something, say something. And when I do, what I've learned is I've learned to trust that he's, if he's working in me, he's also working in the person that he's wanting me to say something to. Now, I don't, it's not like every time I share something about my faith or about Jesus that, you know, somebody becomes a Christian. Not that at all. In fact, sometimes there's no response. Sometimes it's a negative response. But what I have come to trust is Jesus' word, the Holy Scripture, never comes back void. And if he is doing something in me, then he's also doing something in the person. I have to be a faithful witness to what God is stirring in me and leave the results to him. Let's speak with courage and with love about Jesus. And thirdly, I think one of the last thing, it's not the last thing, it's the last of these three, the reason we shy away from testifying is shame. In order to, be, to testify, we need to be real. We need to be vulnerable. You see, if we had never sinned, if our life was perfect, we'd have no need for Jesus. We wouldn't have anything to testify about. But it's because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because of our need for Jesus, that we have a story to tell that points to Jesus. But so often, I think we sanitize our stories, believing that if we give the full story of our brokenness, people are going to run away, 
Or maybe they'll think, boy, she isn't a very good Christian and our witness is destroyed. Kurt Thompson in his book, The Soul of Shame, describes shame as this. It's something that actively and intentionally attempts to shape the stories that we're telling. You see, hiding, shaping our story is a natural response to shame. And when we hide, we don't give the full story, either of our depravity, our brokenness, our need for Jesus. And in doing so, we're also minimizing what Jesus has done for us. By minimizing or hiding our story, we minimize the glory that so rightfully belongs to Jesus. Our brokenness testifies to the power of Jesus and our need for Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God and he rose again and because of that, each of us has the opportunity for forgiveness and to receive life, life to its fullest. So just as John used his own personal experience with Jesus and then the witnesses of the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and then finally God's declaration, Jesus is my son. So the challenge is that we will take every opportunity we have and we will stand and declare along with John these words. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son and whoever, the son ha whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Do we believe it? Do we testify to it? So in response today, we're actually going to join in communion together as a time of reflecting of who Jesus is and what he's done. I would ask that the communion servers um, come forward at this time, please. So this communion table is, is open to all who have made a decision about who Jesus is. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you've placed your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and you have made him Lord of your life, then you are welcome to join because you are part of his family. You don't have to be a member of Center Street Church. You don't even have to be a regular attender. This is a gift to all Christ followers. Now, if you don't follow Christ, if you're not sure about this evidence, if you haven't nailed this down and said, I believe, then we would just ask that you pass the cup and the bread past. But I want you to think about his invitation. You see, Jesus wants everyone to come. Everyone. No one is exempt from the invitation. His invitation is that you would receive the forgiveness of your sins, be filled with his spirit so that you can experience that rich life that we just declared. And you can actually do that right now in the quietness of your heart. 
confess, I believe. Jesus, I believe that you came to earth. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died and you rose again. I believe that you are the only way that my sins can be forgiven. I believe you are who you say you are. If you believe that, then you have just entered into a a covenant between God and you, which makes you one of his children. He now says like he did to Jesus, you are my son, you are my daughter whom I love. And you are welcome to join us today. You know, it was out of God's love for us that he sent his son, his only son, born of a virgin, He lived and he ministered through the power of the Spirit. He died and he rose again once and for all, proclaiming power over sin and death. And that's what we remember today as part of this this ceremony, part of this, this event where we take the bread and we take the cup of juice that represents his body and his blood. We remember who Jesus is and what he did for us. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians what Paul writes. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Servers are going to pass the cup and the, and the bread. Just hold each of them, and when we come back together, we'll take it together. Use this time. Use it to reflect on what Jesus did, who he is, what he's done for you. Allow that to just spill with gratitude. If there's things that you need to confess Do that. Spend this time just in reflection, in praise for all God has done and who Jesus is. Thank you. Jesus, as we hold this bread, represents your body, your flesh was torn, suffered, died for each of us. And this cup that represents your blood that flowed out, cruelty that you endured suffering for us. Jesus, your death saved us. Your death has given us eternal life when we believe. So Jesus, we remember And we celebrate you today as the lamb who was slain for us. You are worthy. 
You have ascended to heaven. You sit on the throne over your entire, entire creation. You've poured out your Holy Spirit on us. So as we take these symbols today of juice and bread, may we be reminded of your incredible love for us. We receive you by faith as we receive these reminders of your sacrifice that made all of this possible. Amen. Took the bread. This is his body, representation of his body for us. Let's eat together. This juice, a symbol of his blood, the testimony of the blood shed for us. Let's take in remembrance. God, thank you. Father, thank you for giving us your son. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving heaven, coming as a man, dying for us, conquering death through your life and resurrection. And thank you, Spirit, for being present in us, leading us, empowering us, emboldening us through you, your Spirit. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's going to be prayer partners here if you want to come up and have prayer about something from the message or something else. And I just want to send you off in a benediction with these words from 2 Corinthians of Paul. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the extravagant love of the Father, and the intimate friendship of the Spirit be with you all. Go and be his witness. Have a great weekend. Thank you for joining us. Amen.